today is a very important day here at, Co- at Grace Covenant, and the reason is is because there's been an official step uh, made in this church to move Mark to become the full-time elder and lead pastor of this church. Uh, it is a tremendous pleasure to be a part of this work. I am so pleased to, to just uh, have that work out this way. I mean, I remember a few years ago when Mark was looking for a means of being ordained, and he came to our church and wanted to get involved in the process. And I told him, I said, well, you're going to have to move down here if you're going to do that. He, he was ready to go, and uh, then the Lord opened the door here. And so we've been coming up here. So it's okay, though. Ice cream's good up here. So I like it. Uh, but I just want to give you a quick update. Uh, Mark knows some of these details, but... There's some dates that aren't finalized yet, but we're going to have very soon. The next four months are going to be very busy at our church. We have Mark, of course, to be ordained, and we have two other men in our church that will be ordained as elders in our church. We have four deacons that are going to be ordained, and we have a marriage all in four months. So there's a lot going on, but one of the things that we're going to be doing is that the men who are going to be ordained as elders, they will be individually brought into our leadership, and they will be questioned Uh, along with the whole training process that goes on here to become an elder. And then there will be a public questioning in the congregation. Now, that's going to be a little bit different because we're going to receive the questions in writing so that it's not stump the elder day, you know, try to come up with some question he no one could ever answer anyway. But anyway, the point is, is that whenever that happens, and it'll be probably toward April or May, We want you guys, if you can, to be able to come down there for that day because it'll be a big day. We'll have, obviously, worship in the morning, a meal following that. Then we're going to have the question and answer time uh, following that. And Mark, along with Chris Olds and Sandy Allen and our church, will be doing that that day. So that'll be uh, a date yet to be set, but we'll be sure to let you know ahead of time so you can make plans for that. I mean, especially since your lead pastor is going to be ordained in that context, it would be good if you could be there. And we'll let you know about submitting the questions so that you can be a part of that process. So it is a wonderful thing. I mean, we need solid churches in America. We need solid churches in South Carolina. And we need solid churches in Rock Hill and Charlotte. And this is one of them. And uh, I thank God for that. So you keep praying for uh, Mark and Allie and their children. Pray for God to protect them. As he mentioned earlier, there's going to be a need to look for more leadership in this church to rise up. Uh, there'll be need for men to be deacons and other men who are desirous of the office of elder uh, to start that training process because I believe, and I, I truly do believe this, that in a couple of years, this church is probably going to be doubled, if not more, because I told our leadership a few years ago that there's going to be more and more families coming out of some of the mainline denominational churches because of the encroaching woke ideology, liberalism, I mean, all the nonsense that you and I probably 10 years ago would have never even begun to think of would have been in the churches. And uh, so we're already experiencing it in, in our church, and I know we have here too, that people are leaving some of the mainline denominations. I actually talked with a couple that's coming to our church recently. They told me that they're leaving the PCA altogether. Uh, they're, they're tired of some of the encroaching allowance of some of the false teaching of woke ideology coming into their churches. It's not to say by any means that all churches in those denominations are doing that because I do know some solid, solid churches that are of those denominations. But churches like this need to be prepared for families that are coming in that are not accustomed to how you approach church life. And really, in many ways, how you approach family life. I mean, what you do here, all right, with children in the worship service is foreign to most churches. I mean, when they come, it's split up, and you don't see it till it's all over with, and they all come back together at the end. And uh, the children never get a chance to see the parents or the adults or the seniors or whoever in the church worship God and, and show them just how important it is. Uh, it's it's such, a, such an important thing. So there's a lot of families that are going to be coming out of that, you know, segregated type mentality where we come and chop the family up and we never see each other till worship's over and that's going to be something that you're going to have to help with i mean you're going to have to help families understand the priority of that and the importance of that well keep in prayer for that we'll keep you up to date on the details what i'd like to do now is take your attention to james if you'll open your bibles with me to the book of james 
we are going through James on Sunday morning at our church, and uh, we're going to uh, be looking at James chapter 3, verse 1 through 12. And I'm going to be talking about the taming of the terrible tongue, the taming of the terrible tongue. This is actually uh, part two of uh, the messages here in James chapter 3. And I'll give you the gist of what we've already covered, but as we move, move our way through it, we'll see what James has to say. More importantly, what the Holy Spirit has to say to us regarding the topic of taming the tongue. James chapter 3, verse 1 and following, the Word of God says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in a word, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also, look also at the ships, although they are so large and driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. The, fire is, the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, fully, full of deadly poison. With it we bless God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives and a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. I don't know if you noticed, but James doesn't have a whole lot of positive things to say about the tongue in this passage. In fact, there's only one section of it that I could find that he mentions anything positive of what the tongue produces whenever it says that, you can bless God the Father with your tongue. It's a pretty graphic expression of what evil comes from the little member that hides behind our teeth and our lips, isn't it? A graphic reminder of just how evil sin can be coming off, rolling off, if you will, the tongue. But the more I read the book of James, and specifically this chapter, it really was something that kind of came to my attention, that there might be one more thing that James points out that could be positive. It's the only other thing I could find, and that is found in verse 5, that the tongue is little. It's little. Could you imagine if it was big, what it could do in the context of this text? Oh, how wonderful it is that the tongue is little. But even though it's little, it's very powerful and can be very, very evil, even though. I'm reminded of a story that a pastor told of a lady that was in his church who often disrupted the church with malicious gossip. In fact, she was the cause of a lot of heartache and strife and division in the church that he pastored. But on one Sunday after the service, the lady came to the pastor and told him that she had been convicted by the message that he preached and that she would like to lay her tongue on the altar. And as a result of that, the pastor looked at her in disbelief. She asked, you don't believe me? He said, yes, I believe you. I'm just concerned as to whether or not the altar's big enough for your tongue. James reminds us that even though it's small, it's very, very big and can cause devastation. It has tremendous destructive power. Some of, us, some of us have seen that firsthand, haven't we? We've seen what the tongue can do in a church We've seen what the tongue can do in a job setting or in an extended family or even your own personal family. I've counseled husband and wives who have divorced over words. I've actually talked to children and parents who have had serious problems as a result of words. I've dealt with children in rebellion and anger as a result of the words of a father that provokes them to anger. When I was a boy, I grew up in northern Florida, and when I was an early teen, I had a best friend. His name was Ray, 
And Ray and I would do a lot of the things that most young boys would do in those days, especially in Florida. We would hunt and fish and ride bikes and build tree huts and we would get shrimping and crabbing and eat it on the side of the creek and we grew up enjoying all those days. Another thing that we would do is we would spend nights together and that would be something that was not always the best of things whenever you had two young boys who had a lot of free time in the evening. But nevertheless, sometimes I would spend the night at his house and he would spend the night at mine. We most often spent the night at his house. But one of the things that struck me in those years is just how terrible his parents spoke to him. In fact, there was nothing that Ray could ever do right. There was never a word of encouragement. There never was a word like, I love you. There was never any words that would give him any kind of credit for anything. He was constantly belittled, constantly being um, accused of things. He was always experiencing the full force of the anger of his father and even worse, his stepmother. His stepmother was absolutely horrific, always yelling at the top of her lungs at him. I remember specifically how I felt being there. I didn't grow up in that context, and I remember how I felt noticing how it affected him and also, more importantly, what it did to Ray. I lost contact with him after I left high school because I was called into the ministry and then I met my wife Angela and then we moved up here to South Carolina and you know how that happens. You have a tendency to lose contact with some of your childhood friends. When I was down in Florida uh, just a couple of years ago, I was just curious. I thought, well, maybe with the internet I can look him up. Maybe I can find him. Maybe he's around here somewhere. And I just Googled his name and I actually found him rather quickly. Sadly, what it was is a picture of him in prison. And the other sad point of that was is that the prison picture was identifying that he died in prison in 2017. He was buried in a cemetery prison. I've often thought about what would have happened to him had he had words of encouragement and love at home. What would have happened had he not had a father that constantly provoked him to anger and his stepmother also? Words are powerful, folks. Words can destroy a person or uplift a person. Words can encourage a person and enable them to persevere in the most difficult of situations, but words can also discourage to a point that where you'll quit everything you're doing. Words are very, very powerful. I've seen churches divided over it, ministries destroyed as a result of it because of gossip and slander, misrepresentations of the truth. Entire ministries and lives of people have been destroyed, listen to this, by words that were never spoken, but that people said were spoken. You know what I'm talking about. But that's all history, right? We don't have any problem with that anymore, do we? Well, unless all of us have had our tongues cut out, we still have the problem. In fact, all of us are tempted with this. James will go on to say in just a few moments, the only one who's ever had complete control over his tongue is a perfect man. And there's not a single soul here today who would say, I'm perfect, right? If you do, we need to talk following the service, right? But it is not history. It's something that we all deal with today. But there's another thing today that we deal with. There's not only the sin of the physical tongue that resides in our mouth, but now there's a new tongue. I call it the digital tongue. And the digital tongue is really just as powerful, if not more. Instead of lying in a wet environment covered with bumps and sliding around between teeth, this tongue is usually black and covered with glass. It's an amazing device. In the middle of the night, if you touch it, it lights up. In fact, I would just rather it not. It also has another ability. It can take pictures. It can create movies. It has the ability to access billions of bits of information you can look up literally anything, anywhere, at any time on this new device called the digital tongue. It is also something that you can send a text with, something that's relatively new in the sense of what we used to be uh, used to, like snail mail, they call it, right? When you'd have to wait for months or weeks to get a letter in the mail. Now you can text someone immediately, and of course, once that happens, you're expected to respond immediately. And then there's email that occurs that you can contact people not only here, but throughout the whole world. 
Along with this ability of the new digital tongue is the access to what is called social media. We all know what that is and probably have had some bad experiences with it. This digital tongue has a very, very dark side to it. In fact, it is very evil and very malicious and full of gossip and slander. One of the worst things that can happen to someone is to get online on social media and let people begin to misrepresent them, slander them. One author said online harassment has increased much, much more since the invention of the smartphone. A Pew Research Center conducted a study and stated that one out of three teens have experienced this kind of harassment. And even some United States um, governments, uh, the state level at least, have put in laws to deal with some of this social media harassment. Harsh words, hurt emotions, and damaged reputations have, occur, have occurred in these social media environments. And uh, Tony Rinke, who wrote a book, 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You, said this, and I quote, In an age when anyone with a smartphone can publish dirt on anyone else, we must know that spreading antagonistic messages online with intent of provoking hostility without any desire of resolution is what the world calls trolling, but what the New Testament calls slander. He went on to say the sad reality is, is that some Christians have been guilty of trolling and have failed to recognize the destructive effects of it. He went on to, to explain that it's very easy to engage in this anonymous sin. He said also each of us have in us an inner troll, an inner slanderer, some part of us that would love to receive a text about a friend or publish some online dirt about someone else or anonymously consume the dirt about someone else that we don't even know and slander and gossip and half-truths and lying and critical speech and insults and sarcasm and ridicule of all types are labeled trolling. The Bible calls it corrupt communication. Corrupt communication. Believers, frankly, are expected to live above this. We're not to be part of this environment that is so prevalent in our world today. We are commanded by God to be very gracious with our words, loving with our words, long-suffering with our words, truthful with our words. And the Bible says this many, many different ways. Like in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And grace means unmerited favor to the hearers. Ephesians 5 says, but fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. And then he says in Colossians, Paul does, but now you yourselves are to put off all of these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Don't lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech always be with grace. That's unmerited favor to the one who hears your words. All right, you're not looking at someone and saying, well, they don't deserve this. You give them the same grace that God gives you, right? And you give them unmerited faith, uh, grace, and then you are seasoning your speech with salt. And then... Uh, You'll know how to answer each one. So the Bible's clear about this. This is not something that we don't know. But yet at the same time, it is one of the most difficult things to get control of. The tongue. James spends 12 verses addressing the tongue and literally has nothing good to say about it. As we look at the text, just to remind you of a few things, I'm going to go a little faster through the first few points, but then I'll finish with the second part today. One of the first things that James points out is in verse 1, and that is the pressing prudence regarding the tongue. Look at verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you shall receive a stricter judgment. Now, of course, there probably were some in the context of the church that he was writing to among the Jewish people there that desired to be teachers. 
On one occasion in the book of Hebrews in chapter 5, it talks about they should have already been teachers, but they couldn't even handle the milk of the word, much less the meat. The point was, it was understood in the context of the Jewish environment that you needed teachers, instructors in the law to teach the word of God. And so it was in the church. You needed teachers, you need qualified teachers, but you didn't want to just be eager to put someone in that position and you did not want to be eager to jump in it. And the reason why is because you're that much more accountable for the words that you share. Whenever you speak before a group of people and you're leading the sheep of God to the throne and to his word, you and I encounter stricter judgment, those who teach. It's easy to want that position because of the esteem that is given in the local church. And there's nothing wrong with that esteem that is given to the teachers in the church. But everyone who teaches the word of God needs to understand whether it's in a local assembly or discipling one another or any other factor where you're teaching the word of God to someone, you are going to find yourself under stricter judgment. Your tongue literally brings you into that context of a stricter judgment. But then James moves a little further here in verse 2. He not only talks about the pressing prudence regarding the tongue, but now the potential perfection by the tongue. Look at verse two, for we are all, we all stumble in many things. Now that's a good thing to remind ourselves of. We all stumble, right? And it does have the idea of intentionally or unintentionally stumbling. Uh, You can be just moving along in this fallen world and stumble in sin. In verse two, he says, but if anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man. And that word perfect means exactly what it sounds like. Some commentators have taken it to mean mature man, but that's not his point. It doesn't fit with the context. He's not talking about spiritual maturity. What he's driving home is if if you have the ability to control your tongue 100%, then you're a perfect person. And there is no such thing. Even the most mature saint of God will have times whenever his tongue can get him in trouble. He even goes on to say in verse 2 that that man who is able to bridle his tongue is able to bridle his whole body. If you have the ability to control the smallest member that is the most evil, then you can definitely take care of the rest of the propensities of the members of your body that lead you into sin. So it reminds us that even though the tongue is a small member and very evil and boasts great things that it is not something that all of us have ultimately all control over. But it's also important to remind ourselves of is that that doesn't mean we don't try to. Just because he says nobody's perfect doesn't mean that we don't strive for following Christ in obedience. Just because he says that everyone will stumble at this point does not mean that we should not give every exercise to discipline our tongue, to control our words, and to speak those things that are honoring to Christ. And that moves us to the third point. You think this sermon's moving fast, right? Well, it's fixing to slow down in just a moment, so just hang on, all right? In verse 3, he talks about the pervasive power of the tongue. It's very simple. Illustrations that James gives. He says, indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. I'm not one to ride horses. In fact, I never have ridden a horse. I've ridden a St. Bernard uh, before when I was a child, not intentionally, but when it came running around the house and decided to pick me up and carry me on his back, I rode the St. Bernard. But nevertheless, many of you who have horses and love that particular beast is one that you know that you can control that entire body by a bit that lays over his tongue. You can turn his head and he goes the direction that his head is pulled. But then also he says in verse 4, look at the ships. Although they are so large and driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Don't get confused by the word pilot like he's talking about an airline pilot. The idea behind the word in the Greek here is just the one who governs its direction. If you use the word captain, you might think of a captain in the Roman army or something like that. But here he uses the one who has the ability to govern the direction of the ship. And the ship is very large, according to this text, and driven by stern winds. Stiff winds is the word. Now in those days, the ships that Paul was accustomed to would usually handle about 250 plus men. And then, of course, they would carry feed and seed and other supplies. 
And they were, of those days, very large ships for that time. But today, what we have makes all of those look like little rowboats compared to what they had in those days. But nevertheless, it doesn't matter because I remember when I was in Florida not too long ago, I was out on the St. John's River in a boat and I came up behind one of those cargo ships. If you've ever seen one of those ships and they carry these containers that are really what you see on the road behind semi-trucks. And this one had probably a, a thousand on there. I'm not sure. It was absolutely huge. And I rode right up behind that ship as it was moving through the St. John's River and you could see the rudder of that ship and that rudder would have easily been four or five stories high at least I couldn't see all that was in the water but compared to that massive ship that rudder was very very small and it could turn that massive ship wherever the pilot desired and the point that he's bringing up is even though there's something very small like a bit in the mouth of a horse which is a very strong animal and then you have the rudder that can turn a massive ship that has tremendous power and is driven by the stiff winds, are we shocked then that the tongue, which is so small, has so much power? And that's why he says in verse 5, even so the tongue is a little member. It's a little member. But it boasts great things. It speaks highly of itself. It speaks pridefully. It boasts so much of its own. So there are a few things that James says about it, but what I'd like to do is spend the rest of our time just looking at the rest of the text here and consider some of the other descriptive terms that James brings regarding the tongue. He says this, as we begin to look at the end of verse 5, or the second part of verse 5, and he tells us, tells us about the destructive inferno of the tongue. This gets even more graphic he says in verse 5, the second part of the verse, see how great a forest a little fire kindles. He says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. There is nothing in the Bible that is so described. There's no other member of the body there's no, no other sinful inclination that is described with such vivid terminology, so much so that it would say that this small little member is set on fire by hell itself. What tremendous, tremendous vivid imagery that James gives us about the tongue. He continues his contrast of small and great, even in this text. But more here, he talks about the emphasis of the disastrous effects of the tongues of the tongue and how, how devastating it is in a large scale. It might be small, but it can destroy vast areas. That's what his point is. It's kind of like the atomic bomb. You remember when that was first created? It's small particles, very small particles colliding together to create the atomic bomb. It may be small, but it has tremendous power and destruction. Look at verse 5, the last part again. He says, see how great a forest a little fire kindles. What is he talking about? He's just talking about a small spark or a small flame and how it can start a major, major fire. And here in this case, the parallel is your tongue. Your tongue is the small fire, the small flame or the spark that can absolutely just devastate an area and consume it as the fire of your words move through. On October 8, 1871, there was um, a fire that occurred as a result of a lantern being kicked over by a cow in a barn. It started the Chicago fire. That one incident ended up costing Billions, not billions, but at least millions at that time of dollars. 17,500 buildings were destroyed. 300 people died. 125,000 others were left homeless. In 1903, there was a pan of rice that boiled over into the fire and caused the coals and the fire to spew out and spread out in the room and eventually consumed a square mile of a Korean city, burning some 3,000 buildings to the ground. And then there was the incident much closer to our time, just a couple of years ago, on July 2018 in California, 
the largest fire in California's history occurred called the Ranch Fire. It, bore, it burned over 410,000 acres. It destroyed 280 structures, cost the life of one of the firemen there, and injured three others. After the investigation to find out what started the fire, they determined that it was caused by someone taking a hammer and driving in a metal spike, and one spark caused the entire fire. It's massive destruction that comes as a result of that. By the way, in verse 5, where it says, See how, or behold, a great forest, a little fire kindles. The word idon there is in an imperative mode, middle voice, meaning look here, observe here, pay attention, pay close attention to what I'm telling you. This small, very small spark of fire can destroy large quantities through its fire as it spreads. I think uh, one author had it right whenever he was talking about the word forest here. The Greek word for forest, hule, is a word that doesn't mean necessarily the towering forest like we think of, of just acres and acres and acres of tall trees. But the word actually has the idea of anything that is wood and combustible. It can refer to a stack of wood. It can refer to a pile of brush. And as this author pointed out, this commentary said, and I think I agree with him, that in the Palestinian area of that time in Israel, I mean, you had the dry seasons. And the dry seasons were like tinder boxes of a spark could occur or a lightning strike could occur. And the fires could just rage for days and have to be burned out on their own. And it was because a lot of the structures on the hillsides of that day would be very, very dry. The dry brush and the dry wood and the different limbs laying around would just be very, very powerful as far as their fuel is concerned for fire. Here, the forest would represent the fallen nature of humanity. And the point is, is that your tongue can literally just inflame our fallenness. It inflames our fallenness. Fire's a little bit different than most things. In fact, you know, fire under control is a blessing, right? In fact, if you have a cold winter and you have a fire in your fireplace at home, that's a blessing. You can take that same fire as long as we are allowed to have gas stoves and you can cook, you know, something on the stove with fire. Also, you can create um, light in your room through fire and candles. But that same fire that can warm a home or cook a meal or bring light to a room is the same fire that can burn that same house down. And it also can destroy the lives that live in that home and bring utter devastation and also darkness. Fire is unique also in the sense that it has the ability to spread. And it's unlike water. If we were to take a glass of water and pour it up here on the stage, that is all the water would do. It wouldn't make a flood here for the whole room. But I could take one small spark up here or a flame and I could start it here and it could eventually engulf the entire room. The key to all of that is the fuel. It needs fuel. By the way, you and I as believers, we either are going to stop the fuel or we're going to encourage the fuel. We are the ones that should stop it when it starts. When someone starts to slander a brother or sister in Christ, we should be the ones that take the fuel away and stop the slander. When someone wants to gossip about someone and spread rumors about someone and evil things, we should be the ones who stop the rumors and stop the fuel and the fire from spreading more and more and destroying more and more lives. Robert Murray McShane talked about the times whenever he would meet a fellow Christian or hear about another fellow Christian, that he made a goal in his life only to say good about him, never to say anything evil about him. And he said that he should do that than to be careless with the fire in his mouth and destroy a brother with whom Christ died. Such a good word to remember, isn't it? And this is the reasoning behind James in verse 6. He says the tongue is a fire. The tongue is a fire. In other words, it's not only small, but it's powerful, perverse, small, influential. It can be devastating, destructive, and spread. It's satanic also and infectious. As we note, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 27 says, An ungodly man digs up evil, and it is on his lips like a burning fire. Proverbs 26, 20 through 22 says, With no wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, strife quiets down. 
Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is the contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a whisper are like a dainty morsel, and they go down into the innermost parts of the stomach. So James is passionate about his understanding of the evil nature of the tongue and what damage it could do. So he gives us five different pictures of that tongue. He says, first of all, it's a fire. It's a fire in verse 6. But then he also says it is a world of iniquity. A world of iniquity, an amazing statement that he talks about here. The word iniquity, common word in the New Testament, simply means unrighteousness or injustice. It can refer to some injury that is done to someone. It can also talk about deceit or guile or fraud. It's used that way. The idea is that anything that is unrighteous and evil and unjust. And he says, but the tongue is not just that. It is a world of iniquity. The word world is the word cosmos. And the word cosmos, I know we're familiar with it because we get the word cosmology from it. And whenever uh, a lady puts on her makeup, what she's basically doing is putting her face in order. That's what the word cosmos means, to put in order. And whenever you think about the cosmos as far as the universe is concerned, you're dealing with all the planets that are running specifically on time, on their course, in the path that God has destined them, destined them for. It is indeed something that is, it is systematic. It is indeed um, um, something that is done specifically in order. That's the idea behind the word cosmos. And what he has in mind when he uses the word world of iniquity, what he is telling us is that this tongue is not something that is just kind of flying over here and flying over here. and has no meaning, no context, no control, no ability to systematize it, no ability to understand where it's going. He's saying that you can actually line words up in order to accomplish the worst possible harm. As one author said, this the tongue is an organized system. There's the word cosmos, an organized system of words lined up in such a fashion as to be adorned with the worst forms of evil. Not unorganized, but rather specifically set in motion like the planets of the cosmos to reap the best benefit for the evil of the heart. The systematic sequence of words that can inflict the most damage and harm. So it's not an unorganized evil event it's very organized and driven by the horrific horrific heart of man some years ago morgan blake a sports writer wrote in the atlanta journal these words and i quote i am more deadly than the screaming shell from a howitzer i win without killing i tear down homes break hearts wreck lives i travel on the wings of the wind no innocence is strong enough to intimidate me and no purity pure enough to daunt me. I have no regard for the truth, no respect for justice, no mercy for the defenseless. My victims are as numerous as the sands of the sea and often as innocent. I never forget. I seldom forgive. My name is gossip. So true, isn't it? A world of iniquity. A world of iniquity. The third point that he brings up here in the text is that that tongue is set among our members, so much so that it defiles the whole body. The word defiles is a present participle, and it could be actually, with the definite article, the defiler. In other words, the tongue is the defiler. It defiles the whole body. The word translated here defiles the words spilao, and the word spilao is a word that means to be spotted or stained. It has in the, in the idea of... Uh, a smoke-soiled garment. Uh, you're, you know how that is. You have a, you're outside somewhere and you, there's a fire going on and you get in the smoke. Your clothes are saturated with the smoke and they smell of smoke. It's the way it is. Whenever I was growing up, and this was back when cigarettes were much more popular, at least among many, and uh, I happened to grow up in a home where both parents smoked. And uh, we would sit there and watch TV in the late afternoon, evening, and there would be a huge cloud of smoke that would hover about three feet in the living room. And we would get down near the floor just to stay out of the cloud of smoke. And even worse than that, whenever we would travel to Alabama every year for our vacation, that was back whenever air conditioners became really popular in cars. And, of course, my mom and dad would roll the windows all the way up, crank both cigarettes on, and here we go circulated all through and we would sit there even though we weren't smoking cigarettes we were smoking 
We were breathing it all in. And everywhere you went, you smelled like cigarette smoke. No matter what you did, your clothes smelled like cigarette smoke. And that's the way it is. It literally gets in and gets in all the fibers and soils and stains everything, doesn't it? I know David and I used to do some cabinets together, and we would go in homes where someone would smoke cigarettes one after the other, and the entire house would be filled with this brown stuff all over the walls. It was horrific. It just destroys everything, doesn't it? And so this is the idea. It's not just an external stain. It's something that gets in and stains within. It soils. It makes everything dirty. It defiles is behind the word. The opposite of that is the Greek word kartharidzo, which is to cleanse. So instead of cleaning everything, it defiles and soils everything. That's what the tongue does. It is the defiler of the whole body. In fact, if you remember in Mark chapter 7, verse 20, Jesus said this, what comes out of a man is what defiles him. In other words, the words that come out of your mouth, that come from your heart that is already evil, is what defiles a man. He goes on and says in that same text in Mark 7, he says, For from within, out of the heart, men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, theft, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. You say, what has that got to do with the tongue? A lot to do with the tongue. In fact, a number of those things are given platform by the tongue, like blasphemy, pride, and foolishness, and wickedness, and evil thoughts are made manifest by the very words that come off the tongue. You can pave the way to an illicit relationship of adultery and fornication by the words that you speak. The tongue can lie to cover sin. The tongue can misrepresent the truth to keep a position at your job. The tongue can boast of great things that aren't even facts at all. It can talk a person into committing a crime. It can reason with a young woman to tell her that she should kill her baby. The tongue is set on fire from hell. Also, the fourth thing that he says here is that it, is, it sets on fire the course of nature. The Legacy Standard Bible says that it sets on fire the course of our existence. The literal rendering of the Greek terms are... To set on fire the will of birth. The will of birth. The word course is from a Greek word that means a will, or some refer to it as the hub of a will that spins and continually spins. And then you have the word that is translated existence here, or birth, or in the New King James, nature. The better idea is that this is really more like it sets on fire the circle, listen to this, the circle of life. That's what he's talking about here. The whole course of life, all that you do and all that you are and all that you interact with and all the people that you touch and are communicating with, every single person in the course of life, from birth to death, it sets it on fire to destroy it. It's so sad to say that that has happened so, so many times. I think many of us just recently witnessed what happened in this horrific crime in the southern part of the state and uh, where the Murdoch family and the lies that were told, um, the misrepresentations of truth, the deceit that occurred, the tongue is set on fire from, from hell and the entire family's destroyed as a result of this. The circle of life, as one author said, to a large extent, we are known by the way we talk. Isn't that true? We're known by the way we talk. Over the long haul, whatever we say gives a pretty good idea of what we really are. You want to know someone? You really want to know someone? Spend some time around them and listen to what they say. I think it's interesting sometimes. I'll hear people say, well, I'm a believer, but they never talk about Jesus. I, I, you know, I'm a Christian, but they never talk about his word. They never talk about the things of God. And I wonder, that doesn't match. That doesn't match at all. It's like saying, I'm an apple tree, but I just never produce apples. It doesn't make any sense. Sometimes whenever I do this, and I don't do it very often, I'll see on Facebook how you can, somebody you know, it says, it'll link you to someone you might know. And I'll look at a particular uh, Facebook page, and I'll notice that that person that I know claims to be a Christian, but there's nothing, nothing about Christ, nothing about his word. Nothing. You wouldn't know. You'd have no idea unless they told you 
The tongue can betray us, right? It's a tattletale on all of us. It tells everyone what our character really is all about. What we love, what we don't love, what we're desirous for, what we care for. All of that is there. The fifth thing that he says here in this text is the most graphic of all of them. He says the tongue is set on fire by hell. And that's exactly what he means, by the way. He's not dumbing it down or making it less than what it sounds like. He's basically saying that the tongue itself has its source from hell itself. The word hell here in this text is the Greek word Gehenna. It's used here in James. And the only other times it is used is in the gospel records when Jesus uses it to refer to hell. Hell is a reference in the time of Israel's history to the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was a deep valley that actually trash was thrown into and bodies of dead animals and sometimes even criminals, their bodies were put there and the fire constantly burned and the worm never died. The place was full of maggots. It had a tremendous horrific stench and the smoke always ascended off the Valley of Hinnom. This place also originally was the place of the sacrifice of children to the God of Molech by the Canaanites. As a result of that and the heinous practice that occurred there in that valley, King Josiah of Judah said the place was absolutely unclean and wholly unfit for any decent usage. So it basically became the city dump and a fire was there all the time. And Jesus picked up on the analogy there of the valley of Hinnom where the fire was constantly burning and the worm did not die as a picture of hell itself and the eternal nature of the fire. This is Satan's place, right? And the Bible says that the hell was created for, this, for the devil and his angels. Not only him, but anyone who rejects the gospel of Christ will also go to the same place. But the point is, is that this is the place of Satan. So you could really assume that what James means by this is not only is it just a place that he's talking about, hell, but the source of the tongue's evil comes from Satan himself. The very synonym of hell is Satan. It pollutes, corrupts, destroys, is unbelievably dangerous and destructive. As even Psalm 55, 21 says, his speech was smoother than butter and his heart was war. His words are softer than oil, yet they are drawn like swords. In Psalm 59, 7, behold, they belch forth with their mouth. Swords are on their lips. So you see the destructive inferno of the tongue. Let's move a little further. Verse 7 and look at the deadly depiction of the tongue. This gets a little easier. Uh, he's saying something that's very, very simple to understand. He says in verse 7, For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. And I would put a little exception there because I have one cat that's demon-filled and I cannot tame it. It is absolutely one of the most horrific cats I've ever had in my life. Whenever my daughter was very small, she wanted a calico cat. So we looked online and found a place that was selling two calico cats. We showed up there. It was a meth lab. And so we rescued the two cats that were there that were even, we thought, could survive. The first kitten died. We kept the other one. It, it, it ended up being a cat that has multiple personalities, probably many demons. I'm not sure what it is. That cat will claw you as soon as look at you. It'll, you can pet it, it'll start to purr, and then it'll turn on you just like a demon would. So I'm not sure if this verse is absolutely 100% accurate, but we understand what James is saying, don't we? And I'm just kidding about the accuracy. We know the word of God is true. But here in verse 7, it says, Every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed. He uses present tense verbs and a perfect verb, meaning this is something that we've always seen, Historically, from the time of Adam, even in Noah and further on, and also even now, we are able to tame the wildest of animals, the largest of animals. And this does not mean to do a domesticate the animal, to make them a pet. We're not talking about bringing in, you know, a, a hyena into your house and, you know, he's your pet. He's not talking about that. He's basically talking about the ability to subdue the wild animal, to control the wild animal. Uh, you see it in circuses, right, where they're able to subdue the lion or the man sticks his head into the lion's mouth. Or you may go to SeaWorld and see them actually ride on the back and stand on the back of one of these, uh, these uh, whale sharks. And it's just an amazing thing to see what God has done with man giving him the ability to subdue such huge, powerful creatures. 
Yet his point is, is that even though that is possible, look at the text, verse 8, no man can tame the tongue. We can tame the wildest of animals, the lions, the tigers, the bears. We can, we can tame the biggest of animals, the whales and the elephants, but we can't tame the tongue. We can't even subdue it. He goes on and says in verse 8, it's an unruly evil. The word translated unruly can be restless. And the idea behind that term is, is that it is like an animal in a cage, but it is not subdued. But pacing back and forth at any moment desires to attack. That's what's behind the unruly nature and evil of the tongue. He calls it also a deadly poison. That's actually a compound word. And the word that is used here for deadly poison is a word that is um, derived from two Greek words, pharaoh and thanatos. The word pharaoh means to bring, and the word thanatos means death, and it basically means to bring death. As one translator said, it could mean deadly death bringing. And, of course, it pictures what can happen with deadly poison, right? As you think of the word pharaoh here and another word for poison, hymen, which is a word that actually has the idea of sending or bringing forth or emitting it, gives the picture of the serpent spewing forth his venom from his fangs. That reminds us of the words in Psalm 140 that are also quoted in Romans chapter 3. They sharpen their tongues like a serpent, the poison of snakes or asp or under their lips. I mean, they spew forth venom that is poisonous and destructive and cause death. It brings death. Not a whole lot of good things to say about the tongue, right? Well, he closes out with the defining nature of the tongue in verse 9 and following. And really what he's driving home here is the point that if you have an uncontrollable tongue to where you have no control and you're spewing forth evil all the time with your tongue, there's a problem with your heart. There's a problem with your heart. Look at it in verse 9. He says, with it we bless God, the Father, and with it we curse men. Now, he's just talking about everyday life, if you will, among all men. And the Jews were known to be those who would bless God. They had their statements that they would say three times a day to bless the God of Israel. They would say that many times, but then they would turn like the Pharisees would do and curse men. As it goes on and says in this text, this is not something that we should do. Verse 10, brethren, these things ought not to be so. And what he's driving home here is this, is that, look, you may claim to be a believer and a doer of the word, but if you're not practicing what God's word says, and all you're doing is saying one thing about God and then cursing men, there's a problem with your heart. There's a problem with your heart. He says in verse 9, you bless God. And then you curse men, and these men that you're cursing, mankind, are created in the likeness of God. So literally what you're doing is you're saying, praise to God, the creator of all things, and then you're cursing the very thing that he created. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? Doesn't fit. He says in verse 10, out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. By the way, the word curse here doesn't mean to cuss. And when I say that, I'm not giving permission to cuss either. He's talking about the idea of wishing ruin on someone. It's more akin to the word anathema in the New Testament, where you're basically damning someone by your words, wishing ruin and destruction on them by your words. The Pharisees would do this. And in fact, if you remember on one occasion, Peter also denied the Lord and it said he cursed, but those Words there most likely refer to the kind of cussing we're talking about, not wishing ruin on someone. But the point is, is that nevertheless, you claim to be a believer and you bless God, but at the same time, you curse the very creation of God. It doesn't make any sense. He goes on and tells us that we are those who should not be claiming to be bearing fruit and yet produce a different kind of fruit than the tree originally would give. And we all stumble here, don't we? Every one of us do. In fact, the earlier text made it very clear that all of us would. We're not perfect, so we do stumble. And we've sinned with our tongues, and all of us have, and have at times been in need of confession to God and to Christ to get forgiveness for our sin of our tongue. 
We've been guilty of coming to church on Sunday and singing praises to the Lord and then slandering our brother on Monday. We've prayed prayers on the Lord's day and then talked to others about another brother's sin instead of going to him alone like Matthew 18 says. We've talked about the great forgiveness of God in our lives and how God has forgiven us of all of our sins and then repeated over and over and over again the sins of others. We've talked about the love of God on Sunday and yet spewed hateful words to our spouse or our children or our co-worker. We've talked about the reconciliation that God has given to us in Christ and praise God for it. Then at the same time, not willing to reconcile with our words to our spouse or our children. We thank God for making us part of the universal body of Christ on Sunday, saving us and bringing us into Christ, and yet complain about the church that God led us to on Monday. We're bad with the tongue. We're bad with the tongue. It should not be so, according to verse 10. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Then he closes with a couple of illustrations that all of us would know. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? What's the answer to that? No. Verse 12, can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives? No. Can a grapevine bear figs? You know that, right? No. Thus, no spring yields both salt and salt water and fresh. In other words, it's inconsistent with your nature. You're claiming to be a believer, and yet you're spewing forth evil from your mouth. In fact, I had one author put it, put it this way. If you claim to be a fig tree and you bear olives, something's not right. What you say you are is not what you are. You are an olive tree claiming to be a fig tree. If you claim to be a grapevine and yet you bear figs, something's not right. What you say you are is not what you are. You are a fig tree that claims to be a grapevine. And if you claim to be one, uh, a spring that uh, brings forth fresh water, but yet you bring forth salt water, something's not right. You are a salt water spring claiming to be a fresh water spring. You see, what our words say should match what we are. In fact, whether we believe it or not, what we say does clearly illustrate what our heart really is. Doesn't it? I close with these words on December 18, 1722. There was a teenager, 19 years old, who dipped his quill in the ink jar and began to write. It was a cold evening that day and he probably warmed his fingers by the lantern so that he could have a little bit more agility with his fingers to write with. He began to compose some writings that all of us have gone back to time and time again. It was the resolutions written by Jonathan Edwards. In those resolutions, he wrote a few excerpts there about the tongue. Remember, he's 19 years old at this time when he's writing these words. He says this, and I quote, resolved, never to say anything at all against anybody, except when it is perfectly agreeable to the highest degree of Christian honor and of love to mankind, agreeable to the lowest humility in the sense of my own faults and failings and agreeable to the golden rule. He says, resolved, never to speak anything but pure and simple principles of truth. Resolved never to speak evil of any except I have a particular good call for it. He says, let there be something of benevolence in all that I say. Jonathan Edwards knew the power of the tongue and the need to control it. One author said this, how easily the failure to master the tongue can destroy the effort of grace that has taken years to build our lives. It can take years to reach a point to where you're following Christ in a benevolent way, in a gracious way. One word can destroy everything. One word. Brothers and sisters, we need to control our tongues. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Our Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this time together with this precious body of Christ here. Thank you, God, for your word. Lord, we thank you for the truth of it. We thank you that you hit home so much with your word by your spirit. We know, Lord God, that we all stumble with our words and our tongue. 
We ask you, Father, that you would forgive us of the times that we have failed you with those words. Help us, Lord, to always be mindful of each word that comes off of our lips to be gracious, loving, long-suffering, and kind, and full of truth. Help us, Lord God, even when there's times that we need to rebuke and to correct and to exhort and to admonish, that those words come from a heart of humility, a position of love and grace and mercy, and that people can see our words are firm and true, but are sweet and covered with grace. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.